These leaders in the Republican Party are pushing agendas which are incredibly violent, economically, politically, and socially violent against women, people of color, against other men. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Today's podcast is a candid conversation with Mark Green, co-founder of Think Play Partners, senior editor for The Good Men Project, founder of Remaking Manhood, and author of the groundbreaking Little Me Too book for men. Mark is a writer, speaker, and coach who deals with the challenges men face being raised in what he calls man box culture. Mark has spent over a decade writing and speaking on masculinity, and he claims two questions remain at the center of his work. Why do so many men simply accept the deep loneliness that informs their lives? And what is the link between men's disconnection with others and their ongoing abuse and violence against women and members of traditionally minority and marginalized communities? Our culture is literally littered with the fallout of unhappy men looking to assert their dominance. From the tantrums of our last president to the daily mass shootings to the broad resurgence of patriarchal male dominance, men are not doing okay, and they are making it everyone else's problem. I'm having Mark on today to talk about how strategists behind the conservative movement and mega movement are looking to weaponize every aspect of the culture wars, including our culture of masculinity, to their benefit and what we as a culture can do about it. Both the health of our men and the health of our society need help because clearly this isn't working. So without further ado, please welcome founder of Remaking Manhood, author, writer, and coach, Mark Green. Welcome back, Mark. It's great to be here. Oh, well, we've chatted about toxic masculinity, man box culture, and how the patriarchy holds us back before. And if you guys didn't hear the conversation Mark and I had when he was last on the show in July of 2022, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it because we touched on a ton of important topics, but particularly how detrimental it's been for men to live within this kind of hierarchical pecking order culture where they have to perform within this sort of painfully narrow set of ideas about what a real man is. And if they don't live up to it or prove it to their manhood, particularly to each other, they end up feeling isolated or marginalized by our culture when the reality is that's a false idea. And this idea of what a man is in general is actually the thing that's isolating them from the society. Mm. So if you haven't heard that, please go back and listen. Yeah, I think we're all done here. Thank you. That, that was fine. <laughs> no, we're having a totally different conversation today. And I, <laughs> there's so much that you say that I, I don't want people to miss out on. But I also don't want to repeat it for my my guests that do listen every, you know, people that listen every week. I don't want them to be like, oh, yeah, no, I loved that episode with Mark. Um, mm-hmm. One of my best friends, Beth, she's raising a boy right now. And she was like, I loved that episode. I learned so much mm-hmm. about how to be a better mother of a boy in a society like this. So I don't want to duplicate, but I do want people not to miss it. Well, it's important to know also that we're, you, me, your friend, we're raising sons. So yeah. this is not some, uh, some, this, people say, well, why are women in the, in the masculinity conversation? Well, they're raising sons. They're, some yeah. of them are married to men. I mean, it's fascinating that, um, that we're actually trying to get stuff that we can apply actually apply to the process of being parents or partners. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. People are always, I was saying to you earlier that, you know, people are always all over my son because he doesn't fit in to the traditional man box. If you look at my child, he looks like it. The very first thing you say to him is, what's your sport, bro? That's the thing that everyone says to him because he's one. Mm-hmm. He's like really athletic looking and he's an actor. He's a singer and an actor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he doesn't fit into that 
particular box that people want to put him in, and then they don't know what to do with that. What a narrow world to to sort of come at people with expectations instead of viewing people as something, as a huge discovery. Like this person, I don't know anything about yet, but who knows what's going to emerge out of this uh, connection I'm making right now. It's like it's like a Christmas present, right? You don't know what's in it. But we, we're we like, oh, give me the same Christmas present 20 times under the tree, the same exact <laughs> thing. I want G.I. Joe, I want 20, all the same, the same wrapping, same everything. I don't understand why people strip the adventure of being human out of their lives in that way. Yeah. And particularly men get it stripped out of there. You know, I think women are allowed to have a far more vast emotional life than men are, are allowed to in this particular society. And I mean, that's the thing that I'm having you on today, right? Like for millions of men, our culture has taught them to suppress their emotions and their empathy and their connections to others to yeah. kind of fit into this acceptable frame of what a man is. And like, look no further than Josh Hawley's book that came out this year called Manhood, right? I mean, talk mm. about performative. I mean, basically our culture is weeding out and shaming all the qualities that would allow men to create these healthy, authentic personal relationships. And that ends up isolating them. Um, so they're left with very little choice but to right. sort of embrace what you're talking about, this kind of top-down, domination-based masculinity that our culture has always favored. And that version of masculinity is filled with all these rules, right? These rules that determine everything from how men are supposed to walk and talk to what they're supposed to talk about and what they're supposed to do for a living and, and the way that the responsibilities are as a man in society, even in their marriages, what the man's job is, what the woman's job is. And it's all a really narrow set of parameters and we can see it kind of falling apart these days. We can see women pushing back. We can see society pushing back. And as you've said, we're basically forcing men into some sort of public performance of what a man is, which is mm -hmm. more often than not completely void of any emotion or real connection. And then we're wondering why it's not working. Hmm. Wondering why we're all feeling deeply isolated. And, you know, I want to, <laughs> since you brought up Josh Hawley, I want to make a <laughs> distinction here between uh, what is a long-standing retrogressive, it goes back generations, set of ideas about how to be a man, and then the intentional weaponization of those ideas politically. So mm -hmm. uh, on one end, you have this historical, contextual idea of masculinity, which is originally born out of uh, the Industrial Revolution, when men were pulled out of the family farms and out of all day long, daily contact with their children and their partner and put on the factory floor and then handed a paycheck, right? And told, basically, you do what you're told here and you can control your family and make your choices there. The ideas of the man box uh, originally conceived by a guy named Paul Kibble include the following. Um, don't show your emotions except anger. Uh, be a breadwinner, not a caregiver. Be tough, never ask for help. Love that one. That's right where the lack of mental health care for men shows up. Don't ask for help. Um, have lots of sex. Talk about cars, sports, or women if you talk to other men, but don't talk about anything deep. Be heterosexual, never homosexual, and have control over women and girls. And that and, and he got the he got this list by going around to high schools in the early 1980s and just asking boys what are the rules for being a man. And I'll read tell this list to people now, guys, and guys in the audience will put their hand up. They go, that, that part about controlling women and girls, we nobody believes that anymore. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, Equimundo did a study in 2017. And one of the questions, it's called The Man Box. You can download it. Just go online, The Man Box, PDF, download it, read it. It's full of deep research about these issues for men in Mexico, the United States, and Great Britain. One of the questions in the study 
ask of men in all those three countries around 2017 was the following one. If a guy has a girlfriend or wife, he deserves to know where she is at all times. Now that's not keeping her safe. That's not caregiving. That's control. Absolutely. And when you ask men, which country you think had the highest percentage and what do you think that percentage was of men agreeing with that statement? So yes, no saying, yes, I agree with this. I should be able to know where my girlfriend is at all times. Uh, it's not Mexico and it's not Great Britain. It's the U.S. And the percentage of men who agreed with the statement is 46%. So we have that level of men who still view this idea of having power over women and girls as central to how we define our masculinity. That's the long tail of our culture of masculinity. But we begin to see how it was weaponized by the Republican Party beginning back during the Reagan administration when they began this drumbeat narrative about deeply individualizing bootstrap, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you haven't done it by yourself, you know. And all of that language plays exactly into this hierarchical idea of masculinity, which is that we're all in, in a pecking order and a rat race and, and competition against each other. And anything that smacks of community or cooperation is considered to be feminine or effeminate. But when you talk about them starting to beat the drum about individualizing and pull yourself up by your bootstraps language in the Reagan administration, it served a specific purpose, which was to undermine social programs and to begin attacking welfare mothers and all these other proven to be wrong ideas that got embedded in American politics, which was basically to have contempt for the social structure and the social system. And as we come forward to today, you've got Josh Hawley essentially making a case for that retrogressive old school idea, the gender binary idea that men go to work and women stay in the home. That whole idea, which is essentially designed to take women out of politics and out of the workplace and push them back into uh, this domestic role, which disempowers them and keeps them from challenging conservative men. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, that's exactly what's going yeah, you're on. Not I mean, doing, I, you're, you're not doing it right, Lee. I'm you, not doing it right. I'm not doing it right. I do do half of my work from my kitchen, though. You know, so there's a number of men that will always be like, stop talking to make me a sandwich, you know. But I think it's so funny because this idea that people are like, oh, no one's controlling women anymore. And I'm like, uh, we're literally stripping women of their rights across the country right now. Like that is happening yep. right now from one political party. It's not, a, it's not an easy case to make anymore for them because they're actually making it illegal to get in your car and drive somewhere. Yeah, they're actually doing it. And I think the thing is, is that this concept of it's a zero sum game, that our society is a zero sum game. Like if there's mm. going to be, if you're going to be a winner, that means there has to be losers. We can't all win, which is why we can't have social programs and we can't help each other and have a social safety net because only the people who are worth it it, you know, are going to make it. And we have to hold those people up because they're the winners of our capitalistic society. And I always think it's interesting because it's not just individualism. It's rugged individualism. That's mm. the American way. And that's a very masculine word, rugged individualism. Right. It's not asking how, women how does that to play out in a up. family? How does that yeah. play out in a family? Oh, I'm the rugged individualist and you're the wife or the child. So you have to do whatever I decide we're going to do. That, that doesn't, that's not just at a, at a cultural level, that's right down to our individual relationships. And it's why men are A, deeply isolated, and B, why their marriages are faltering and failing, because we come in with this authoritarian idea of men as leaders of the family, right? So there, any of these ideas you see 
happening at the cultural level or in politics are going to play out in our marriages, in our partnerships, in our child relationships. It's going to play out right there. Right. And you're talking about authoritarianism in the family, but that's probably why we're now seeing an entire political party that's leaning towards authoritarianism because they believe in that in general. They like that idea of top-down behavior. They like that idea of domination. They're now, I would say that the mega Republicans particularly are almost reliant on domination now, right? Like it's something you've said is one of their defining values is dominance. And I think until we understand that, we don't really understand the threat that that party is forcing us to face. Yeah. I, I'd like to just step back for a second and help folks who, who may be new to this conversation understand what's going on with boys and men, because the idea that boys and men are born into the world wanting hierarchy is absolutely disproven by a ton of research. In fact, it's, it's enforced on them beginning at an early age. And there's two bodies of work that are really important. Um, research by Judy Chu and research by Niobe Way. And Niobe Way wrote a book called Deep Secrets, and she, she had a single simple question for boys in early adolescence, and that was, what does your best friend mean to you? When we talk about boys and men as being emotionally disconnected and reactive and authoritarian and all this stuff, it's born out of what happens in, in childhood for boys. And Niobe Way's research, she says, what do your best friends mean to you? And in early adolescence, boys say, one, I love my best friend. They use the word love unashamedly. And the second thing they say is that without my best friend, I would go crazy because they're having these incredibly intimate uh, sharing conversations. They're literally processing their experience of being human with their best friend. Then later in adolescence, four years later, she goes back and interviews the same boys and they're saying, yeah, my best friend Mikey lives around the corner, but I don't see him that much anymore. Um, another kid said, yeah, that, that, that relationship, it's kind of on a, on a fade out. And when she did uh, the research to find out what was driving this, it was the culture of masculinity, the dominance-based culture of masculinity, hammering away at these boys until they stop caring about who they are authentically and start worrying about proving what they're not, which based on her research is they want to prove they're not little kids, they're not girly, and they're not gay. And in that moment, they disconnect from those friendships in late adolescence, and our son's suicide rates become four times that of girls. We're literally tearing them loose from the support structure of rich, connected friendships. And then we just slot them into this hierarchy of masculinity based on their status, size, family connections, whatever it is. And the message to them is, okay, here you are in a, in a rigid hierarchical system. Learn to dominate the men around you or be dominated. That's your two choices. And in that moment, we, can, we, we ensure their disconnection because you cannot have a real connected human relationship with someone who's dominating you or that you are above and having power over. So boys and men then enter into lifetimes of deep social isolation, which, as I've said the last time we spoke, is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So men start having heart attacks, cancer, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases much earlier than they otherwise should. And that's the system that's creating these reactive, angry, dominance-based men that make up the MAGA movement, the, the generation of boomers that are driving the Fox News narratives. All of that is playing out in attacks on women, people of color, LGBTQ, because when a man is living in that system, he's fraught with anxiety all the time that a guy's going to call him out, that he's going to get caught, because all of us as men have to take huge parts of who we are authentically and hide them, right? 
maybe I'm kind to my um, partner. I'm not going to admit that to the guys at the bar because they're going to call me whipped. Maybe I'm gay and I'm not going to admit that to certain men in my life because they're going to get on me about that. So depending on how big the secrets are that I'm hiding and we're all hiding something, then we have this anxiety that we have to suppress parts of who we are as human beings. And that's trauma-inducing. Naomi Way says, if you have to pretend you have no emotions, i.e. that you're invulnerable, that's trauma-inducing. And all the issues that men deal with after that come out of that trauma. I mean, it feels like we're breaking our boys early in our Very society, early. right? Earlier than even adolescence. Judy Chu, the other person I mentioned, did research in a pre-K class. And she was with, a, for two years, she was with boys and girls, and four and five-year-old boys and girls. And she said that uh, beginning very early, boys are already hiding their emotional acuity and their ability to read and respond to emotions because, and taking on the sort of stoic masculine performance the culture uh, puts on them. And there's a little boy, four-year-old boy, comes to her in, as part of this process. And he says, Miss Chu, I'm friends with all the girls in the class, but don't tell Mike, the head of the boys club, because if he finds out I'm friends with the girls who kick me out of the boys club and I won't have a club anymore. So you got a four-year-old boy who's already hiding authentic aspects of who he is. And it's bad enough that he doesn't get to be in relationship across difference, in this case, gender, and connect with girls as he grows older and learns to do that nuanced kind of connection across difference. But when boys start hiding who they authentically are at age four, because they already know who the alpha is, quote alpha, that's a terrible term, who the bossy kid is in their cohort, then that begins a pattern for men where we hide our voices, hide our responses, hide our reactions, which is what gives us this millions and millions of men in the so-called movable middle who are silent right now. They may not agree with the extremist stuff that the MAGA are doing, or they may not agree with what the bully at the water cooler says at their workplace about some woman who works there, but they don't say anything because they've been bullied and trained out of speaking from anything authentic. And instead, they're all worried about aligning with this particular idea of what it means to be a man, because they know that if they fail, that bully is going to come after them. You talked about your son uh, being artistic, being a performer, and people saying, what's up with that, right? And and often The asking, amount of times people ask if he's gay, he's mm -hmm. not remotely gay. And that's the first thing they say. And I think, why would you say that? What a peculiar thing to say. So this is the water we swim in, Lee. This, this yeah. is the part that I try to get people to grasp. There's two things here that are really crucial. One is, when we look at men and say, why are men behaving in these ways, which includes being sexist in the workplace, uh, you know, fighting for laws that disempower women, all the stuff that on the, you know, the, the meta scale, but in the micro scale, just the daily interactions that feel like this guy just doesn't get me and he's not even trying. When we talk about that whole system, what we're talking about is an idea of masculinity which takes half of what it means to be human, which is to be creative, to be a caregiver, to be empathetic, all these things. And, and we gender that as feminine. We say, oh yeah, that's what girls and women do. That's why women are better at being parents and mothers and whatever. And then we take the other half, tough, strong, leader, and we gender that as masculine. And we shame all of those relational capacities out of our sons. We also so, shame those good those qualities out of women. We call them bossy and bitchy. Right, and leadership. If they have, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in that moment, we're taking all of our children, male, female, non-binary, all of them, and we're tying one hand behind their backs for the rest of their lives. 
And this is what we do in, in men's work. And this is what we do when we're raising children in more relational ways. We bring all of those human capacities in and we say, you have this side to yourself that you're born. I mean, we as human beings, since the dawn of time, have had rich, powerful capacities to form community and relationships. Do you think a tribe 10,000 years ago would have survived if every man was for himself only? They wouldn't have survived. This is part of what it means to be human. And somehow the industrial revolution and this technical world we've grown into has given us enough comfort, enough comforts and safety that we can then become individual, you know, a cult of individualism and become dismissive of the idea of community. But the Democratic Party right now, it represents community and connection. And, and as, as flawed as some parts of it might be, it is vastly superior to a culture that is authoritarian, hierarchical, and dominance-based. And the other thing I want to say about the Democratic Party is I hear people saying, well, you know, the Democrat, I'm like, has anybody seen what the Democratic Party is doing in the last five to 10 years, especially under Biden? We have a president now. You want to talk about community connection? Yeah, or talk about someone that is empathetic and kind. But that showed up on on a union picket line. Now that's collective labor. That's community. That's creating something that goes against this hierarchy. The the Republican Party is essentially funded by people who want to break down the federal government's ability to tax and to regulate corporations. That's Senator Whitehouse talks about this so eloquently, right? He talks about the idea that the attack on the SCOTUS wasn't really about all of these social issues. That just gets people motivated to vote in those ways. But once those folks got control of the SCOTUS, the one place where they have always consistently, one after another after another, uh, followed the rules or the expectations of the funders of that movement have been when it comes to regulating corporations and taxing. And they know that that breaking down the right to vote is part of winning that battle. So you see some of that in there. But the long and short of it is we have to decide as a, as a country whether we want to stand together or, or fall divided. And this is the message that's coming out of the Republican Party is, screw everybody else, I got mine. And by the way, we have to roll women's rights back to the 1950s because they're getting out of hand. You know, I think the thing is, I think it's fair to say that the issues that impact boys and men's mental health, particularly their emotional mm. well-being and their ability to connect with others, is the thing that's being used right now to drive this conservative anti-feminism, you know, anti-LGBTQ, reactive right-wing mm. politics that we're seeing now across America. Like these boys' issues that we do to them in early childhood and tell them they have to fit into this certain box are becoming our political issues, right? Mm-hmm. Like I I look at the elevation of someone like the conservative Christian culture right now from all the calls from the national abortion bans to talking about marrying child brides again to no-fault divorce, the book bans about anything that doesn't fit into an actual box of what they think old school values are. And then I look at Mike Johnson and his like evangelical performative masculinity. And the fact that this new speaker of the house's positions on everything from contraception to sex is so bigoted and so small-minded. You would think he would be way too extreme for 2023 America, but he's unanimously elected by his party because this is who the Republicans are now. And we have to stop pretending otherwise. Their party values 
no longer line up with the values of the majority of Americans, which is why they have to cheat and gerrymander and suppress votes, because if it was just the best idea wins, they would never win. And if I may, because I have you here, mm-hmm. I find Mike Johnson incredibly interesting because he doesn't actually fit into the traditional alpha man box ideal. So his entire personality to me feels reactive, like he has embraced this far right conservative churchgoer persona and then gone over the top in his dominance to make up for it, right? Like yeah. he does less Andrew Tate. He's sort of less Andrew Tate and more Ned Flanders, but he's using that Ned Flanders in this kind of very dominant way. And like, if you talk, if you see the interviews with him and his wife, he's got this really creepy, dominant father knows best thing. She's got this voice, which I now understand is called a fundy baby voice, which I did not know was a thing, but that's a fundamentalist voice for women where Christians like Kelly Johnson or Michelle Duggar talk like little girls. So they appear sweeter and more subservient around their husbands. And that just terrifies me because obviously this Duggar asshole and all of his children, they made a ton of money off like just being terrible, terrible parents. But Mike Johnson is in charge of America's laws and Mm. our money. And Mm. so there's a lot more at stake the way we're going right now. I'll also say that Mike Johnson and Kelly Johnson are in a covenant marriage, which is a marriage that's almost impossible to get a divorce from. And it's the kind of marriage conservatives want us all in when they talk about things like no-fault divorce. So there is this way of like, even if you don't quite fit into the box, you're going to find a way to fit into the box to dominate the rest of us. And I I think we really need to be calling it out when we see it. Well, when we we talk about leaders in the Republican Party, these are not like stereotypical alpha males. I'm sorry, but I can't, I can't, I can't see Mitch McConnell swinging through the trees, right? I just can't see it. And the <laughs> Lindsey <fact> Graham, that, <laughs> right. Josh well, well, so we already know, we already know that a lot of closeted men um, lean into conservative politics as a way to maybe process some of their own shame too. They, they've been shamed about their own. And this is, understand that man box culture, as we describe it, dominant space masculine cultures, shames men about their own authentic identities. That's how it operates. Yeah. How can you get a Lindsey Graham uh, doing what he's doing uh, when he has been shamed into hiding authentic aspects of who he really is? And we know the guy flipped on Trump uh, it's not just shame in that case. There's also uh, compromise or whatever is going on with those folks. But the fact of the matter is these leaders in the Republican Party are pushing agendas which are incredibly violent, economically, politically, and socially violent against women, people of color, against other men. How do we fight this, right? How do we go, how do we go about this? Well, anyone listening today can understand that, that it's a, a, a battle that happens on the political front, donate your money, volunteers show up, be there. But it's also a battle we're fighting on, on the interpersonal, relational, social front. And one of the things to remember is that some percentage of men, I do a lot of work in corporations, I do a lot of work for organizations, and I go into organizations these days and I say, hey man, you know what, what can I do? What, what kind of conversation do you wanna have about these masculinity issues? And the DEI folks who are often women and often women of color 
will say, well, we, we want to try to shift how men are, are performing masculinity. And these man box rules show up in the workplace. There's an organization called Catalyst that does work about what they call combative work cultures. They say that basically that men have this masculine anxiety in the workplace. And that is that they feel like they need to perform traditional masculinity at their jobs. And that that's no accident. It's no different than, than in the rest of the world, right? There are other men in that workplace that are harassing them. But, but you get to the level of a combative work culture when that bullying is, is really overt in the workplace. That about 94% of men in the workplace that were polled said, yeah, we, that, that exists here. And then um, you have this combative culture where men are being bullied. And if the combative culture is at a high enough level, men who would normally call out sexism in the workplace say they won't, they wouldn't do it. So we call this suppressing fire, right? This is happening in our politics. There's a reason why newscasters on Fox, Hannity and those guys, at some point about 25 years ago, took on the tone of bullies, took on the tone of dominant masculine culture because it's all suppressing fire. I, I don't agree with that guy, but I don't want to, I don't want to start it up with him. It, that can, that runs through our heads. These millions of men in the middle, these silent men. And many of them say to themselves, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to challenge, you know, Frank, this manager guy at the cooler who just commented on some woman's body, because I know Frank will come after me and I won't get on certain teams and I, and it may cost me a raise and all that stuff, but I'm going to take care of the women in my family make sure my daughters get to college. I'm going to look after the women in my circle to the best ability, but I'm not going to open my mouth. And in that moment, we lose because this bully gets to define the open, audible discourse. There may be six men standing there. Because no one opens their mouth, we presume that the five other guys sort of agree with him, when in fact, all of them may be running this silent tape, right? I'm not going to mess. I don't need this. But also, it won't work. The idea that we can look after our partners or our, our daughters, it will not work because sooner or later, they have to go out in the world. And who's there? Frank, that guy at the water cooler. Mike, Joe, all of these different bullies are going to be there. So men need to realize that this tipping point we're at around masculinity, this authoritarian, reactive masculinity that's driving Republican politics, uh, and, and, and what we're talking about right now in the GOP we have a different GOP than we had even 10 years ago, but it's, yeah. a nat- it's a natural byproduct of what Roger Ailes started when he began the Fox News thing. It is a spiral. It's an accelerating authoritarian spiral. So every election cycle, they have to double down. They have to, they have to increase the level of authoritarian language and ideas. And, and it started kind of gently, you know, a little bit. And then you got Reagan and then you got, you got Bush and Bush too. And but Newt, you had Newt talking about people being their enemies and, you know, he, he changed the culture in the house. And now you see what happens in the house where everyone is just truly a cruel, cruel bully on the Republican side. Yeah. But think about that, that marble game where it starts to accelerate going down if you want to keep up and remain in that hierarchy of dominance, you have to exhibit dominance at the level of the men around you. So as soon as someone says, uh, you know, the COVID vaccine's fake, everybody had to double down on that. Everybody had to come to that level of crazy. And it's only getting worse. But at some point, it gets so accelerated that you can't pull out of it. And that's where we are with the GOP now. There is no, there is not going to be a way for the GOP to redeem itself because the GOP is in this competitive and every individual there, 
Some people say, yeah, they like doing the dominance. I would suggest something different. They're terrified of not keeping up with the dominance. They're terrified of not doing the dominance. Because what will happen is they'll get primaried. uh, They'll get attacked. They know that this thing is spiraling out of control. They all feel it. And they're all in this anxiety-driven rush to say the next most extreme thing they can, which is why you have a guy got elected to Speaker of the House. Every Republican said, if I don't vote for, I've already taken issue with, with Jordan and these other folks, you know, I, I got to say yes now, I, or I'm going to get, I'm going to lose here. I'm going to lose my status. I'm going to drop a couple of notches and a couple of notches can be the end of your world. If you're caught up in man box culture. I find the whole thing just so fascinating. I mean, dominance is what the mega authoritarians love about men like Trump, right? Like they don't really care about the national debt, if it's good or bad. Their leader can say one thing one day and the complete opposite the next, and they Mm -hmm. don't care about the hypocrisy. It doesn't matter. The question is, does this person have power and are they using it to dominate others? Did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? Well, you do now. And these kind of germs on your bedding can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy noses. Plus, it's just gross. Which is why I'm pleased to tell you that Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent up to 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. Miracle Made sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are also incredibly comfortable and luxurious without the high price tag of other luxury brands. But go see for yourself. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and try it out today or gift it for someone this holiday season. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Save over 40% off by using the promo code politicsgirl at checkout. And you will also get three free towels and save an extra 20%, which is honestly a heck of a deal. And Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you will get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep today with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to claim your three free towels and save over 40%. Again, that is trymiracle.com slash politicsgirl to treat yourself or a friend or a loved one to great sheets this holiday season. For those of you who don't know, I have a super rare lung disease. Although scarring in my lungs is where the disease originates, it's my heart that's actually affected. So I know firsthand how important heart health is to your body, which is why I'm pleased to be talking about Humans Super Beat Heart Chews. Super Beat Heart Chews is an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure and promote heart healthy energy. They're plant-based and stimulant-free, so you get a green boost without all those jitters. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Super Beets are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Super Beets is the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for cardiovascular health support, which makes it blood pressure support you can trust. If you find yourself drinking too many coffees or too many energy drinks just to keep your energy up, you can switch it to Super Beat Heart Chews, which are used by college athletes and pro sports teams to support performance and endurance. Double your potential with Super Beat Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beat Heart Chews and 15% off your first order by going to getsuperbeats.com and use the promo code POLITICSGIRL. That's getsuperbeats.com slash politicsgirl. 
Do you know that when your garbage gets picked up every week, almost half of it is food waste? Food waste doesn't just stink up the kitchen, it stinks up the planet with a ton of methane. But now that we have Alomi, it's changed the way we deal with food waste. It's the biggest innovation in the modern day kitchen since the dishwasher. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into plant food in under four hours. It's smart, simple food recycling that fits almost every space perfectly. You guys have seen my rants. My kitchen is not big, but I found room for the Lomi. We know the planet is facing a major crisis, so any steps we can take to limit our family's personal carbon footprint, we're gonna do it. So instead of sending our kitchen waste to a landfill, we can help the environment and turn it into an all natural fertilizer. And now, Lomi's new app lets me track my environmental impact, earn points for every cycle, and redeem for freebies from the Lomi and other great bands. If you guys are listening to the show, you know I love this machine. So if you wanna start making a positive environmental impact, have a cleaner kitchen, or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use the promo code politicsgirl to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl at checkout. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl at checkout. As always, thank you Lomi for sponsoring this episode. So I was talking to my friend's husband the other day and he was telling me that he's been having trouble sleeping and was feeling miserable about it. And I was like, have you tried Beam Dream? Beam Dream Powder is Beam's best-selling hot cocoa for sleep. It contains an all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. In fact, a recent clinical study showed that Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. You just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and drink it at bedtime. Plus, my husband's been using it for a while, so we can truly recommend it. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health, which is why having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable and why we feel so absolutely wrecked when we don't get enough of it. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar, now available in delicious seasonal flavors like cinnamon cacao, sea salt caramel, and white chocolate peppermint. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of their biggest sale of the year and get up to 50% off for limited time when you go to shopbeam.com beat. The discount is auto-applied at checkout, so no code is necessary. That's shopbeam.com slash B-E-A-T for up to 50% off. Beam Dream. Better sleep has never tasted better. Hey, so let's stop cutting down trees to make toilet paper. Did you know that we cut down tens of thousands of trees every day just to supply America with toilet paper? Well, we do. And wouldn't it be great if we could just stop? Well, we can with real paper. Real paper is 100% bamboo. So they're using a plant that grows fast, can be harvested and regenerated like grass in a lawn and doesn't impact entire ecosystems of forests. 
Plus, real paper is the best kind of eco-friendly because it doesn't feel like you have to sacrifice something to help the earth. I am a full-blown toilet paper snob. I like all the fancy plushy aloe-infused goodness, and real does not feel like a downgrade. In fact, with the convenience of it delivered right to my door and the knowledge that I'm making an environmental impact, it feels like an upgrade. Real Paper is also partnered with One Tree Planted. So every box of real that you buy helps fund reforestation efforts. So while your regular toilet paper cuts down trees, Real Paper is actively helping to replant them. Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for a one-time purchase on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door with free shipping in 100% recyclable plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com slash politicsgirl and sign up for a subscription by using my code politicsgirl at checkout, you will automatically get 30% off your first order and free shipping. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash politicsgirl or enter the promo code politicsgirl to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. Let's make a change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real, it's paper for the planet. The question is, does this person have power and are they using it to dominate others? You know, like yeah. is, like Abbott and DeSantis dominating women or gay people or sending asylum seekers on planes to cold climates just to own the libs. You know, like they don't care that's a waste of their taxpayer dollars. Mm -mm. They care that it was a massive dick move, like a bully move, yeah. and they love it. And we could see the bully on full display when Trump was running in 2016. And as you say, he gave every single person a schoolyard nickname, like an old fashioned Lil Marco and, you know, low energy Jeb and all that kind of stuff. And you have said, and I think it's so essential, if somebody in that 2016 debate stage, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, whoever, had just walked over to Trump and punched him in the face on national television, <laughs> Trump would never have succeeded. He would have collapsed like a house of cards. He would have. Yeah, because they didn't, right? They took it. They took it and then Trump looked like the winner and then he became the president because of it. It was basic domination culture in action where bully determines your status and everyone else falls in line. And like they said, they don't want to like be like, hey, bro, like don't make that rape joke. It's not it's not really that funny. And everyone's like, come on, Brian. Like, like you don't want that, right? So you've said that the GOP has now become this full domination-based political culture where every existing understanding of political decorum that we used to have, no matter how assaulted it's been by, you know, say Fox News or Rush yeah, Limbaugh, yeah. it went right out the window when Trump came on the scene. And then there's this now this connection between this domination culture of masculinity mm -hmm. and extremism, right? So now we have white nationalism and Christian nationalism and racism and sexism and religious intolerance. And it all kind of comes back to this appetite for domination that in some ways right. we bred into ourselves in this culture. Yeah. What's really important to notice is the way in which we train boys out of connection. Beginning at age four, we say, what are you a sissy? What are you a girl? And boys are, are policing each other in this way yeah, you, you, I'm just going to tell people like what Mark's talking about is this kind of concept of we bully our boys with the degradation of the feminine, right? right? Like we condition them to see girls and women as lesser because we use female words to embarrass them, right? We say, don't be yeah. a pussy. What are you gay? Be a man, man up. We say all those things, which implies that feminine is bad. And if Think you are- about it, all the worst insults are women's body parts. 
I mean, or, or female dogs. I mean, and, and we're, I'm talking, I'm not talking about the worst insults for men. I'm talking about the worst insults everywhere. They're really, I mean, aside from don't be a dick, there, there really isn't much, but, but when I say don't be a dick, it doesn't have the poisonous air that, that when I say don't be a bitch, right? That, so this idea that, that boys are, are born with these relational capacities, they form these deep, meaningful friendships as small children, but they're slowly beaten out of it by a culture which trains us into policing each other with language that's all about the denigration of the feminine. And it doesn't happen weekly or daily. It happens five times an hour with young boys. We're constantly going after each other with that 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 stuff, either as friendly microaggressions, as open attacks, whatever it is. So boys are both have their connection in the world broken, their empathy, all these other aspects that you need to create community, it create rich, vibrant community, but they're also trained into seeing girls and women and less. And here's the white supremacy piece. Once you train a population of boys to think of themselves as being inherently better, i.e., I'm a man, therefore I'm better than women, uh, it doesn't take much to convince them that I'm also better than immigrants, I'm also better than people of color, I'm also better than LGBT. You know, that idea, that's a slippery slope. What we need to be teaching our sons is don't make yourself feel better by putting other people down. But what a lot of people are teaching kids is boys are better than girls, period. And that's a slippery slope into all these other forms of extremism. And the Southern Poverty, Poverty Law Center, if you just Google male supremacy, you'll come up, they bring up an article um, it's a that, great article, and I would is. highly recommend reading it. Right. And all it tells you, essentially, is that the, all of these guys in the manosphere, the Jordan Petersons and the Andrew Tates, who literally make their living talking about women as, as less than men, all of those folks have a population of followers which are which overlap almost like 95% in a Venn diagram with white supremacists. And white supremacists absolutely push the gender binary that there's a there's a biological man and a biological woman and there's two roles and the women's jobs is to is to reproduce and produce more white children for them and to and to manage the domestic sphere so this binary this gender binary that's being pushed is weaponized as a, a white supremacist idea but the other aspect of this that's really powerful to understand is that it's born out of the trauma that boys experience because I, 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 I invite women and men in the audiences that I speak to, non-binary people, to imagine the amount of violence it takes to get young boys to give up close friendships. Just sit with that for a second. And every man you see acting out like a MAGA, every man acting out in the workplace, it's all born out of the fear of isolation that, that, that men live with because we don't have community, which is why men's work is so important. If we can't raise, and, and my partner, Sally Habab, and I wrote a book called The Relational Book for Parenting. And it's full of cartoons and ideas and stories and games and fables and whatnot for kids of all ages where parents can work with kids to grow their complete participation in the communication and connection that makes up a family. They don't show up trying to do what you want. Instead, you create a container where they bring their full selves. And in that moment, we start to teach them that not only are we shaping them, they are shaping us. 
It's a back and forth relational process. Creating and caring for relationships is the fundamental capacity which allows boys and girls and non-binary kids when they reach a certain point and the, and the culture tries to assert that gender binary on them, they say, what? why would I want that? That is, that's terrible. And these relational ideas uh, work just as well for adults as they do for children. But that book was an attempt to create a container for children where they can show up as their whole selves. They can begin to share what they see in the culture, what they see going on around them. It's about context. It's about listening with curiosity. It's about uh, holding uncertainty. It's all these ideas. But if we fail to do that with our children, what we end up with is a guy like me, who at age 50 had gone through two divorces, failed in a couple of jobs, couldn't quite ever connect with people. My son actually pulled me out of that trough a little bit in terms of forming an authentic relationship. But I went and did my men's work finally. I went to an organization called the Mankind Project. And the day that I got there, uh, you know, I just said, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm all in. I'm not going to be like Mr. Skeptical. I'm just going to participate. And I'd been writing about masculinity for 10 years, talking about the systems and the structures. I knew what pressure we were under, but I had never turned that lens on myself because it was too painful. Too many things down in the basement, right? So I go there. I'm on the carpet. It's my turn to say to this group of 40 men, you know, 10 facilitators and 30 guys just like me, different ages, different race, different sexual identity, everything. And what came out of my mouth was, Based on the guys I knew when I was young, based on what happened in my family, I don't like men. I don't trust men. I hate men. And I'm sick to death of being alone. And I'm weeping. And these guys look at me and they, they say two things. They say, one is, that's not the first time we've heard that, brother. Don't, don't sweat it. But two, would you like to trust us? And the work that came out of that moment coming forward for me in my men's work, uh, in my relationships, et cetera, has turned that whole story completely around. Now, when I meet men, I love them. In fact, I'm like amazed that we're even on our feet, right? Given all the insanity of the world. I feel the same way about women, non-binary people. I'm like, how are you up and walking? This is, you're, you're a miracle. We're all miracles. So now let's build on that. And any man out there who is feeling disconnected from your kids or your, uh, your work relationships or you're, you're struggling in your partnerships, do your men's work and learn the capacities that we should have learned as children to relate and connect and express authentically and bring that full authentic person, which you've kept three feet to your left all your life, back in, integrate that into who you are and start living, start living in community and connection. I can tell you I'm raising a son to do that exact thing. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of people that because he didn't fit into the box were like, oh, you must be gay. And he said, he's like, I'm not even going to say I'm not anymore. Who cares if I am? Like, yeah. I'm not. But like, it doesn't matter. Like, right. imagine how I would feel if I was gay and people were talking to me like that. And he's like, I'm just going to be like, OK, bro, like, whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cool. yeah. And I thought, good for you, kid, you know, just to go into the world and be like, I am who I am. If you like it, you like it. Don't try and put me into your weird box. And a but lot of kids are doing that. Yeah, I know. That's the thing that's so exciting. I can hear them on Xbox being like, why are you saying gay like it's a bad thing? And they're all talking to like people they don't even know. Yeah, yeah. And I love that. But because this is a political show, I want to bring you back to how this dominance culture pertains to the GOP performance on the election night we just had in 2023. Because you have been quoted saying the Republicans will not be able to reflect on the losses they took in Kentucky and Virginia and Ohio because they are so rooted in this dominance culture that all they can do is double down on it. You wrote, 
that MAGA voters don't care what's rational or what's coming next. They care about supporting the strong man, supporting authoritarianism, creating chaos and bullying others. So domination culture has clearly traumatized Mm -hmm. them. So then they can only kind of feel validation traumatizing others. And they're having a lot of trouble stepping away from it. I mean, I'm looking at Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that the reason Republicans lost is because they weren't extreme enough on abortion. And the day after the Republicans lost, they're doubling down on getting rid of Social Security and Medicare and subpoenaing Hunter Biden and Joe Biden to like make them suck it, you know. And I just feel like they're not even trying to fix anything anymore. You know, they're all about grievance. They're all about domination. And ironically, they're all about victimization. They're like, it's so unfair to us, which I find is such a dichotomy because they're such bullies, but it's also just so unfair to them. They're they're just obstructionists and complainers and they blame and they kind of just get off on hurting and marginalizing others. And then they're shocked when people aren't that into it, when they get to vote for it and they go, no, thanks. Like, we don't want that. They're just mm. not getting it. They're not. But, I, you know, the part that, that I am tracking is that if if there are marching orders for the MAGA, it's not to change the kind of laws passed in Washington. It's to take down the federal government. That's their, yeah. that's their ultimate goal. It, because you just remember, have to listen to Steve Bannon if you want to hear that. Yeah, that's The oligarchs want to end the federal government's ability to regulate corporations and to tax corporations and individuals. That's what they want. So by destroying the federal government entirely, that's one way to get there. And right now we have a Congress that's about to flip into the debt ceiling not being raised. We're about to have that. So what happens next is really fundamentally a question of um, whether we can get to an election cycle where Americans say, okay, we do we or don't we want a federal government? And for me, the federal government constitutes the most powerful leveling tool we have between states that may be hyper-conservative and states that may not be. The federal government represents a response to massive crisis, uh, weather crisis, whatever it can be. The federal government represents the defense of the nation, which right now Tommy Tuberville is turning into a joke. And the federal government represents our way to speak as a unified nation in terms of policy and practices. I'm not giving that up. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let this country collapse into 50 different states, which I guarantee you would immediately begin shooting wars between some of them. And the fact of the matter is, that's the part of this dysfunction that worries me, that, that they're like, well, who cares if we're dysfunctional? But I think most Americans understand that there's a split between the MAGA reactivity, dominance-based uh, violence and chaos, and those of us who seek and understand the need uh, for a collective response to the biggest challenges we face. What comes next, I think, is um, Americans coming to understand that this is an attack on all of us. There is no white man living in Manhattan who's going to dodge this thing. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to dodge it. Nobody's going to dodge it. Because what's coming next is the collapse of all of our institutions and systems if these folks are allowed to continue in power. Yeah. And I always say to people that are like, if he wins again, I'm moving to wherever, you know, Portugal, New Zealand, Canada. And I'm like, how safe do you think you're going to be in one of those countries if America is authoritarian or if America is like 
a bunch of oligarchs if America runs like Russia or America runs like Hungary. No one will be safe because we have the biggest military in the world. We have all this money and we have a leader with a wandering eye for authoritarianism. You're not safe in New Zealand. You're certainly not safe in Canada. It'll take them about two seconds to be like, oh, there's a lot of natural resources up there. No one is safe anywhere. We have exactly. to fight back now before it takes over. And then we all think, oh, God, what did we do? So, I mean, what is the answer then? What? How do we counter this behavior to make society with happier, more evolved men who don't feel the need to punish us for their own unhappiness? Yeah. Boy, you said a mouthful right then. Let, let, let's, look at, let's look at the good news. Welcome okay? to my life. That was very well stated. Well <laughs> Yeah, they're going to punish us because they're miserable. And they are yeah. miserable because they're deeply isolated and anxious and com- and closeted and God knows what else. But here's the good news. I have some good news that it that from that flows from masculinity straight into our politics. There's a guy, a professor at um Brigham Young University who is on our podcast by the way, the Remaking Manhood podcast. Um and he did research into the impact, the political impact of engaged fatherhood. And the conversation we had, he's interviewing adult sons of engaged fathers. And I was like, oh, that's cool. How far back were they parenting? Oh, 60s and 70s was the earliest data we have that. So uh, that would be my father, right? Uh, I, I'm, I'm of that age, but coming forward into millennials and Gen X and all that. And what he found was that an engaged father, the son of an engaged father, is more likely to express his emotions and consider the emotions of others. He's more likely to see women as equal in the political and business spheres. He's more likely to, in, to appreciate diversity. And I was like, oh, well, that's impressive. So um, what percentage of dads were, quote, engaged fathers in the 70s? He said, well, a lot, dads are somewhat engaged, but Truly engaged fathers, about 15%. I said, oh, so you're telling me 15% of dads in the 70s were teaching their sons about diversity and equity and inclusion? He said, no, they were just throwing a ball with them in the backyard. They were just showing up for their baseball games. And I was like, wait a minute, what? He said, the re- when a father is not emotionally disconnected or absent, which is the classic you know, 50s dad, he comes home from the office, gets the martini, opens the paper and says, don't bother daddy, he's home from work. You know, this idea of engaged fatherhood, when we roll that over to the data we know about younger voters, younger voters are leaning like, I think in the mid 60 percentage, 65, 68% toward the Democratic Party. Oh, higher. Yeah, good, higher, even better. But because they do, in fact, believe women should have equity in political and workplace spheres, all that stuff. They're coming out of engaged fatherhood, right? And if 15% were doing it in the 70s, I guarantee you in the 80s and 90s, the, the big story right now is dads are wearing their children and caring for their children and connecting with their children at a level that's far beyond throwing the ball with them in the backyard. And this is a powerful wave that's now moving through the culture. And the Republicans know it's coming. They've done the polling, which is why they're now saying, maybe we shouldn't let kids vote till they're 25. Maybe we shouldn't have voting so easy on college campuses. They know and understand. And that wave is not coming out of, you know, gay themed library books in their elementary school. Part of that wave is definitely coming out of children watching their fathers do caregiving connect as equal partners in the home, do all this stuff. 
The long and short of it is we have a wave coming, Leah, that is going to change fundamentally everything about politics in America. The Republicans know it, which is why they're trying to lock down democracy now. They know that in the next 10 years, I mean, already the boomers are no longer the majority voters. And as a, as a late boomer, I can tell you that the sooner boomers stop voting, the better off we'll all be. And I hate to say it, but it's true because 50 to 60% of boomers are reactive right-wing extremists. This is the story of men, fundamentally. And my generation, men like me, younger, whatever. If you're in the man box and you're pedaling as fast as you can and you're picking up women in the bars and playing sports and doing all this stuff and trying to play that character and dominate the men around you, at some point, you're going to age out. You're not as competent in sports anymore. Maybe you don't get that raise. Maybe your knee goes out. Maybe you get seriously ill. Maybe you get fired. You go through your second divorce, like me, whatever it is, okay? The, the younger men just blow right past you. You get kicked to the curb. And those men have a choice right then. I had one. It's a fork in the road. I can either blame feminists and, and immigrants and liber liberals and, and all that and double down on dominance and keep pushing that narrative in my life, an angry, reactive, condemning, victimized narrative. Or I can say, this, this doubling down on dominance thing, it ain't working. I got to do it's something It's not serving different. me. Yeah. Yep. I have to self-reflect. I have to try to understand what's going wrong. I don't know how to talk to my co-workers, my wife or my children. I feel estranged from everybody in my life. I feel lonely. And those men, lucky make the choice to move toward connection, which, which I did and which hundreds of thousands of men are doing in men's work all the time. And you create connection, you get a life that's livable, but these other guys, they're going straight at the MAGA movement. And then they run headlong into the final anger of all of them. And the last anger that these men experience is they turn, they take all that rage and they turn it internal and they commit suicide. 75% of suicides in the United States are older white men. Because not only did the Republican Party teach them that you got this bootstrap individualism shit and you have to be the breadwinner, not the caregiver, they also offshored all the jobs and turned healthcare into a predatory uh, you know, capitalist operation and did all of these things, which essentially cost employment for all of these same men who in the 1950s were taught that being the breadwinner is your primary central role. So these guys uh, now, you know, the idea that we would offshore every major manufacturing job during the 70s and 80s and 90s is just some guy doing man box culture, doing dominance right. He's just leveled up one more time. Congratulations, sir. Well done. And the men who end up angry and committing suicide old, you know, in old age often attribute it to they can't earn a living anymore. And they have no circle of male friendships to rely on to, to process the challenges that they're facing because they got trained into this hierarchical bullying thing. So I'm telling you, men's work or this isolation piece, this angry isolation piece, that's the fork in the road for older men. Yeah. And it also comes down to the parenting again. And it doesn't just have to be a good dad. It can be a good mom too, but conceptually raising our kids, to, especially our boys. Yeah. That, that research I told you about, the men often named women as their father figure. They often named people who were not their birth father as their father figure. So yeah. you make a very good point. 
Well, I think the thing is, is that it's men aren't just killing themselves; they're killing other people, right? They're making decisions for us in government. Right. They are nearly all mass shooters are men. This kind of thing. I mean, as you point out, men need to find this space between what they feel is their identity and what the larger culture of masculinity has taught them their identity should be. And mm-hmm. if men could do that, if they could start asking the questions about who they are, who they want to be, who they think they have to have, you know, why they think they have to have things in a certain way, then maybe they can find their way to some sort of authenticity and acceptance where they can have real friendships like they had when they were little children. And they can be part of relationships that actually feed their lives, um, not just the idea of how their lives are supposed to be. Because I think if men could be vulnerable, if they could enjoy real intimacy, maybe they could give up that power struggle a bit, you know, with women, with each other. Maybe they would have the courage to say not funny to the guy telling the rape joke or have the confidence to speak up when one of their friends talks about, you know, how what they'd like to do to that drunk girl. Maybe then we could stop financially rewarding or voting for the absolute worst, most insecure bully men um, who make their own internal struggles everyone else's freaking problem, right? I mean, it's kind of well past time for us to encourage and normalize a healthy masculine culture. And then maybe we wouldn't be going down this heinous road of the most unhealthy masculine culture that we're witnessing with MAGA and the GOP. And I would suggest this to anyone listening. Look around you. Look at the men around you. I have told you a very important piece of the puzzle, and that is the silencing aspect that a lot of men in the middle who actually are willing to reach this tipping point about caring for others and so on are keeping their mouths shut because they think all the other men around them agree with that. But if you're a woman, if you're a man, if you're a non-binary person, notice the little hints of connection that men do offer create a conversation about something other than than cars and and you know video games and whatever look for ways to to break down those false barriers because at this point there's enough awareness out there that that barrier between connecting and not connecting is getting paper thin there's enough of a crisis that people are saying i got to start connecting with the people around me there will always be some percentage of men who are simply bullies and it's it's some they've got enough trauma or it's bred in some way into their view of self, their construction of identity that they can't let go of it. But the vast majority of men don't want to be alone. They don't want to be sad. They don't want to be angry. They don't want to be MAGA. Because if that was natural to us as men, it wouldn't be killing us. And it's killing us. We're literally dying younger because of isolation, anger, rage, that whole thing. Let's start building connection. Men, you need to have the courage to start speaking your mind and connecting with the people who need your support and care. And you need to do it in a way that's respectful of their individualism. Don't talk down, ask questions, be present, be a caring person. And what you'll find is that what comes back to you is the community. We can come in from the cold of isolation and disconnection and instead form community uh, that will help us live longer, more, um, more productive, more joyful lives. Yeah. I mean, look at the men in your life and the ones that are the biggest bullies and just think like, do they seem happy to you? No, they probably seem like they're trapped in a prison of their own making. And we shouldn't have to be as miserable as they are. The Republican party is clearly trying to take us back to the heyday of the patriarchy. And I think most of us have to be like, yo, we weren't happy then. We're not happy now, and we think we can do a lot better than this. We're not, so here, to I, spo- we're not here to sponsor bully culture. No, any, thank you. Anymore. 
We're done. <laughs> Anymore. No more. We've done it. We tried All it. Done. Didn't really work. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today, Mark. I mean, as always, these are complicated topics, right? But they're ones that really need to be addressed. And I really want to also thank you for devoting your career to this idea of mm. a more evolved and less dangerous version of a man so that we can have a more evolved, less dangerous version of society. So tell people how they can follow your work and help out with what you do and follow along and, and be better leaders and men and, and parents themselves. Well, you can find me on most social media platforms at Remaking Manhood. And if the story I laid out today about masculine culture is, is of interest, this little 75-page book uh, just He's holding up out. a book for those of you who are... Um for those of you who are listening, audio, he's yeah. holding up. Yeah, it's the little, uh, the me, little too me Too book, book for men. And it's yeah. an excellent book. I've had it. And it, it's, it's about a great to book. come out as an audio book, too. So oh, look perfect. for that in the next few days. So Remaking Manhood. Yeah, Remaking Manhood. Any, You'll find me at remakingmanhood.com. It's my website. It's where you can reach out to me if you, if, if you need uh, work at an organization or coaching or whatever that is. But also, just for those who are interested, I've just released a novel called uh, Dance of the Hanged Man. And it's a ghost story. It's Stephen King-esque. People are giving it five stars on Amazon. They're going crazy for it. And it is about five boys trying to survive a supernatural event in the woods of Texas in the 1970s. And it threads in these ideas of we're more powerful together, uh, the different kinds of boys bringing different skills and capacities. But it starts off pretty much with a man box construct of, of boyhood. And uh, for those who love a good story, these same ideas can be delivered in that way. And that's also out as an audiobook now, Dance of the Hanged Man. Thank you, Mark. And thanks for coming. I hope you'll come again. Huge pleasure. Thanks. This, this is the Masculinity Desk signing off. So that was Mark Green reminding us, but particularly men, not to keep your mouth shut. Stop being silenced by the idea of how you think you're supposed to behave and ask more for your life and more for our society. We can't pretend that men are happy and we can't pretend their unhappiness that they're feeling doesn't make them act out. We break our boys early. We stifle their ability to have deep and connected relationships and then we send those broken boys into the world as broken men. So it's not a surprise they end up emulating or following other broken men. But the majority of men out there are not bullies. They are not hateful bigots. They just have to be strong enough to speak up, vote up, and stand up for what they really believe in. It may feel uncomfortable to speak up, but once you do, I think you will find you are far from alone. I wanna thank Mark for joining us today and you for caring enough about the good of our country to be here. Now, maybe let's take don't be a pussy out of our vocabulary. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.